0: Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it, which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time, or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. this episode, we talked to Dr. Melinda Thompson, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Director of the Distance Education Program at Abilene Christian University's Graduate School of Theology. And today we'll be talking about the relationship between translation and interpretation when it comes to the Bible and what exegesis is and why it matters. And then we also talked about how God himself is translatable, which I think says a lot about God's character and it gives me hope for the work we're set out to do. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Melinda Thompson. Mindy, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks
1: for asking me.
0: Well, why don't we go ahead and start off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure.
1: Um, So I serve as Associate uh, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages and the Director of Distance Education for the Graduate School of Theology. Um, I came to the GST nine years ago. Um, specifically to help them launch uh, launch our programs online. Um, it was merely convenient that I also have a PhD in Scripture, um, and so so they sort of got two for the price of one. Uh, somebody to somebody to help direct their distance programs, but also someone who teaches um, teaches classes in Old Testament, and Greek and Hebrew. Um, so that's uh, that's a little of what I do, um, how I how I start how I got started here.
0: Yeah. Well. Uh- on that note, what, what kind of brought you into the field of biblical studies? How'd you land here?
1: Um languages, absolutely. my My mom says that um, that, that I love languages because I like to talk, um,
0: <laughs> which is
1: probably true. Um, so just always been fascinated with uh, with communication, with the way that words fit together, um not just for English, but also for other languages. really loved. Spanish um, in high school and uh, just thinking about uh, the ways that God communicates through all of the different languages of the world. Um, I was involved with uh, Pioneer Bible Translators when I was in college. Mm. I did an internship with them in Guinea, West Africa, and really was heading toward um, what I thought was a calling to do Bible translation on the mission field. Um, And the uh, the fun, well, funny, sad thing was, I my health wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't put up with that. I, I did an internship in Africa, and I spent almost the entire summer really sick. And um, the missionaries were so gracious to me to say, you know, you don't have to kill yourself serving overseas. You have they really helped to affirm my gifts in language and my gifts for translation, and said, you know, you could invest your life stateside helping to train and encourage other people to to work with the text. Um, and so that's a lot of what moved me from a, a focus on missions, cross-cultural missions in Bible translation, to then um, pursuing a career where I could help teach other people about language and teach other people about the skills that are needed for interpreting the Bible.
0: Absolutely. I love that. That feels like a big jump, at least. I don't know. That's a lot to, to sort of say goodbye to, to end up here, but we're really <laughs> glad to yeah, have you. <laughs>
1: thank you. I, I really was grateful for the people at PBT who loved me enough to say, it's okay to not go into the mission field. Some some organizations are, are the internship is more of a twist your arm and mm. sign you up and all this stuff. And they were really keen to say, you can serve God in other ways. Um, you really can have a, a faithful life of service that doesn't involve you dying an early death on the mission field, <laughs> um, for which I am grateful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So on on that note, I wanted to – I did my undergraduate in Bible as well as my, my MDiv here sure. at ACU. And especially when I was an undergraduate, Greek was this sort of monster in the darkness that hit around your second year. The, the Everybody knew it was annoying. coming. Yeah, <laughs> And – it was legitimate. There was a lot of fear surrounding sure. learning oh, yeah. Greek yeah. Uh, at an undergraduate level. And I've seen it at the graduate level as sure. well with, with yeah. both Greek and Hebrew. So I would love to hear you speak to <laughs> your <laughs> discipline sort of striking fear in the hearts of Bible majors sure. across the yeah, country. That,
1: that's a, it, it's really unfortunate. But I mean, we've certainly seen it a lot when we're talking with prospective students. And the hang up is, well, I have to take Greek, won't I? Well, I don't know if I can do that. Um, and and the you know the thing I tell students all the time is there are no weed out classes in seminary, right? Greek and Hebrew is not the gatekeeper for whether or not you should be in ministry. Um, but I totally get where that where that sense of anxiety would come from. Um, languages are not everybody's cup of tea. And they're complicated. and and then you add on top of just learning any language, the additional kind of theological freight of this is the word of God, right? This this is scripture. This is not just you know some Spanish poem that I'm translating or whatever. This is, <laughs> this, is this is this is this God's word, and and so to put all those things together really does kind of create this um, really unintentional, but but does create this aura, I think, for people of boy, this is you know this is really hard, and this is not. Something that I'd be able to do, or something that I'm equipped to do. Um, another thing I think that catches people off guard are the many, many ministers who have gone through seminary and have taken Greek and Hebrew and struggled with it um, for for different reasons. Maybe the approach the teacher was using was not the most positive. Um, maybe maybe they you know just had kind of a negative experience for whatever reason, and they've gone out into their ministry and boy, I'm never going to use that or I'm, you know, I'm never going to. And so so that also sometimes I think adds a a layer of why do I have to do this if a minister that I look up to who seems to be doing effective ministry has never used this past seminary? You know, is it just a hoop to jump through? Is it just a prove that I'm more spiritual than you? Um, And so I I think those are some of the reasons why, learning about a biblical language um, can seem a little daunting to people.
0: Yeah. I'm curious about what you would say to, I I think what we're seeing is a trend to require it less. Right. In some places.
1: Sure. Yeah. A lot of schools are dropping Greek or Hebrew or both from their curriculum, from their requirements. Some of that is just about um, market demand Mm. that people are more likely to sign up for a program if it doesn't require Greek and Hebrew. Um, A lot of people are saying, you really can have fruitful ministry without knowing the original languages. And that's totally true, but that's (laughs) not not a lie. Um, And so some of it, I think, is trying to make seminary accessible, um, trying to make it a little less scary. We certainly offer degree programs that don't require Greek and Hebrew. Um, and that, that can be attractive to, to certain people. And not everybody who comes to seminary sees themselves as someone who's going to spend hour after hour engaging in the text as their primary calling in ministry. And so they don't really see the need.
0: Hmm. I wonder about that because it seems like there would be there would be a place for at least some sort of general knowledge or something to at least get people in encouraged to the idea of engaging with these languages at some level, especially since from my perspective, I grew up sort of desperately monolingual uh, without any exposure really to foreign language until high school. And the very basics of the complicated nature of translation, even with contemporary languages, took a while for me to get. And so I, I imagine there's some Merit to at least developing those skills, even if it doesn't mean becoming a Greek or Hebrew scholar. Sure,
1: I mean you're you're you know you're preaching to the choir. That's (laughs) that's, you know those are some of the some of the arguments that I make with students, um, not just in our language classes, but also in our in our English Bible classes. Is the the place for right the the argument for understanding of biblical text, even if you're never going to. Read the Greek New Testament, cold turkey, you know, no, no helps at all. That, you know, that's, that's a goal that very few people actually attain. Um, and, but at the same time, if you're being called to communicate God's word um, to other people, if, if the calling to ministry is about working with God's word, at least a basic understanding of how that word was put together how that word was originally constructed and then communicated to others, I think that kind of knowledge is invaluable to to help us rightly discern. Right? What does the Bible say to rightly discern mm-hmm. the word of truth? Um, and that's that's neither putting it on this pedestal that it's completely unapproachable,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is I think some of the fear about taking a Bible language. Nor is it the you know the swing the pendulum to this thing where, oh, that's just, you know, that's just any old, any old literature, any old story. Um, You know, finding that that healthy balance of a right understanding, a right appreciation and reverence for God's word, but at the same time recognizing that the Bible is infinitely translatable because God himself is infinitely translatable. Mm -hmm. God wants to be known. God wants to be understood. And so why wouldn't his word be that kind of translatable as well. Um, that, that's totally different from, we talk about this in my Greek class, the Quran is not translatable. If, you, if you're a good, faithful Muslim, you are going to read the Quran as, you know, Allah's word in the original Arabic. And while there are translations of the Quran into other languages that you can get your hands on, they're very clear. That's not scripture. That's not holy word. And I, I think I well, I'm not a Muslim, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have all of those all of those arguments you know aside. But I think that's sad that the people that God loves so much, the people that God is reaching out to, the people that Christ died to save, need to know that message before they can accept it. And so, why wouldn't you? want to communicate that in whatever language that the people are speaking, whatever their heart language is. That's the mission aspect of what got me into all of this, that communicating the gospel is so important that you have to be able to do that in the person's heart language, in their mother tongue, so that it is as easily understandable as possible. And so that's that's one of the things I really love about about the Bible is that it is it's supposed to be interpreted, it's supposed to be translated. it's supposed to be made available in whatever language the people understand
0: on yeah, on that note, I want to to ask you what you what are we working with in terms of the biblical text with the languages we have available and as it presents itself in that way
1: sure um so so th- of course, the Bible was originally recorded for us. The manuscripts we have available in Hebrew for the Old Testament. There are a very couple of short passages that are originally recorded in Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew. Um, and then the New Testament in Greek. And um, and so we have Greek and Hebrew. We have lots of good translations today. Um, in in you name the language. <laughs> um, the the fun thing about the the really promising thing about Bible translation is that the number of people groups who do not have a language in their heart language, in their, in their mother tongue, is shrinking year by year. And that's really encouraging um, that that task of Bible translation is coming so close to, to being fully accomplished in, um, in the world. And, and I believe that that can be accomplished in our lifetime um, with the, the tools that we have. But for you know for most of us, that's, that's going to mean a good English translation. And there are so many English translations available. And we just have a, an embarrassment of riches for <laughs> you know for Bibles that are available to us today. Um, I was just just this morning having an email back and forth with my niece who is asking me, "What Bible translation do you read?" My church uses translation X Y Z. Is that a good one? You know what should I what should I be reading? And you know we walked through some factoids about. Here's where that translation came from, and here's the publishing house, and these are some of their theological leanings, which might, you know, help you understand why they might translate certain things a certain way. But honestly, every English translation we have available to us today is faithful to the text. It's a reliable communication of God's Word, Um, if for no other reason than the Spirit Mm -hmm. that Jesus promised, right? Jesus promised that the Spirit would guide us into all truth, but also... Because of the faithful men and women who've worked on these translation committees to help make the scripture available in in English for us.
0: Yeah, and and I love how you're you're already sort of blurring the lines, I think, uh, and rightfully so, between translation from one, one language to another and interpretation theologically, where there's it's not as easy to. Demarcate those two things as yeah. separate disciplines mm-hmm. is what it sounds like.
1: Absolutely. Translation is interpretation. There's, there's no such thing as a one-for-one plug-in that this word in Greek means precisely this word in English or any other language for that matter. Languages are more complicated than that. Every language has their own um, worldview has their own cultural perspective, which lends itself very much to the to the language, um, the words that are used, the connotations that those words have, um, and those languages change over time. I guess today you call something sick and that's a good thing. Um, so even you know even the English language changes over time and develops over time. Um, and the same thing with with uh, any other any other language. And so the idea of translation involves, Understanding the word in its original context, both the dictionary meaning, but then also some of the larger questions surrounding the, the culture, the worldview, the perspective, the things that are being communicated, the larger context. Um, and then trying to find in the target language something that most nearly approximates um, both what is being said and what is intended, what's, what is meant, right? Not everything communicates as clearly as, what is it, Peter says that the Apostle Paul's writings contain some things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> so it's not just, I know what the words say, but I know what they're saying. I know what they're trying to communicate. And being able to, to translate something in a way that involves both of those things. Um, I, I tell the students in my language classes all the time, translation is an art and a science Now, the science part is, that's grammar, vocabulary, I know the forms, I can parse the verbs, I can, you know, I can put it together, that kind of technical aspect, that's the science part, but much more difficult to teach. And the thing I think that takes kind of a lifetime of of work with the text is the art portion of that, knowing as much as you can about the history, the culture, the the literary forms, that this is an idiom or this is a joke, or maybe Jesus was saying this a little tongue-in-cheek, um, which is not necessarily recorded in the text itself. You can get all the forms right and still misunderstand what's being said.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm curious to go back a little bit to you talking about sort of the myriad of, of faithful English translations that we have the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm I'm feeling like I I don't actually know a whole lot of people that would hold that optimistic of a view as you do, where you can look at the the myriad of translations and and find a lot of hope in that. Sure. I think I meet a lot of people who are very tied to one translation or another, mm-hmm. or are very limited in their scope of understanding sure. what translations are out there and available yeah.
1: like like choosing your favorite sports team or something. sure yeah <laughs> so you know of course certain people certain faith traditions um are going to be very loyal to a particular translation um one that's been produced by their denomination one that's sanctioned by you know people they know and trust and 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 are are, are you know they they put their faith in those guys and so um that of course they're going to do something like that um What I said to my niece at the end of of our email conversation was, reading the Bible is a good place to start. Mm. And if you're willing to read, I don't care what translation you're reading. (laughs) Now, if you want to move beyond that, if you want to move beyond that initial goal of read the Bible, for goodness sake, (laughs) read the Bible. um, If you want to move beyond that to which translation, then we can have some great conversations about where the translations, where they came from, how they, how they were put together, the particular group of people who sponsored that translation, the process that they used to walk through it. Um, is that a, a fresh start translation straight from the original manuscripts or is it a revision of an existing English translation? Um, you know, those are good questions. But if somebody's just coming to me and saying, hey, I want to read the Bible, good for you. You do that. Um, just you pull it off your shelf and start reading, and then we can ask those deeper questions.
0: Well, and now uh, you got me curious about what what some of those deeper questions might look like. What are we What are we dealing with when we do go beyond? Sure. Well, I'm pulling it off my shelf and I'm reading it pretty regularly. What are What's some stuff that pops up most commonly?
1: Sure. I th- I think most of the conversations, most of the questions, are about that kind of theological perspective. Again, there is no translation without interpretation. It it is impossible Mm -hmm. to produce a a bias-free translation. Translation doesn't work that way. Communication in general does not work that way. If you're going to say something worth saying, it's intended to persuade, right? Um, And you don't want to listen to something that's not persuasive, right? You don't want to read something that, you know, is completely unbiased, which which is false to begin with. And so... The question then about a translation project is what are the theological leanings? What is the bias? Um, and I don't necessarily mean that in a negative tone. We hear the word bias and we immediately think the news media or mm. political discourse or, you know, there are all kinds of things in our world today that, you know, you say, oh, that's biased and that's a bad thing. Everybody believes something. And so when you think about the, 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 version of the Bible that you're reading, what are the theological beliefs of the people who put that version together? And do they adhere more or less to your own theological beliefs? Now, if you're new in the faith and you're just starting to learn about the Word of God, lean on those, those wise people who are, who are discipling you, who are encouraging you, and go with what they're telling you. But at a certain point, particularly if you might be, say, taking a master's degree in <laughs> in a ministry subject, you should certainly be able to start asking some of those questions for yourself. You should be able to to look through the introductory material. Have you ever read the foreword to your Bible? Right, every Bible, every Bible translation, every version has that you know those first few pages at the beginning that tell you where this came from. How many times? How many people have actually stopped and read that and said, "Oh." I know that group of people. I know that that faith tradition. I understand that denomination. I, I, I follow their their beliefs. Um, just a, even a, even a simple web search will pull up a lot of information about, oh, that's where this comes from. That's what they were trying to do. What were their goals in the translation? Uh, again, one of the good questions to ask is, because we have so many English translations available to us, why this one? right where what, what lack in existing translations was there that would lead somebody to say we need a new english translation and so what what are the goals of this particular translation what are they seeking to do that other translations in their estimation at least failed to do and then to say okay is that what i'm looking for
0: well and now i'm imagining this Sort of crisis point for those of us who were raised in traditions that said the Bible is this thing that we can we can hand to you and you can flip open and and just sort of begin to glean truth from it, which I imagine is is true to oh, some sure. extent. Absolutely. But the more you talk about the translation process and English translations and 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 the plethora of them specifically there does seem to be this crisis point of feeling a sort of distance from the text that we didn't have before, where all of a sudden, what was this sort of very present active thing now goes through several filters in yeah. order to get to us. And maybe they were always there and now we're just aware of them. Yeah. But I'm imagining a sort of crisis point for, for us as we walk through that, yeah. where we're discovering, oh no, like people were behind this. <laughs> how do you how do you walk through that yeah. with students who oh, sure. are who are going through that?
1: Yeah, that that occupational hazard of every seminary student <laughs> who gets to a certain point and says, "Wait a minute, you know, there are an awful lot of human fingerprints hmm. all over this. And, yeah, what do you do with that? Um, and so we a couple different ways that I talk to students about this. one One way has to do with the way we think about God, right? we We say that God is both imminent. Right here, immediate, close at hand, near to the broken heart. You know, all of those things. God is imminent, but he's also transcendent, right? He is holy, other. He is, in, you know, the highest heavens cannot contain him. And both of those things are true about God all at the same time. Um, and somehow my theology friends managed to find a way to hold both of those things in tension, <laughs> right? To believe both of those things about God at the same time. And so if you think about scripture, you might apply those same kinds of categories to it. That the text is imminent, right? It, it's it's right there. It is immediately transferable, right? It's it's translatable. It is so applicable to right here, right now, whatever it is you're going through, right? It is a word of God for for us today. Um, otherwise, why do we read it? Mm-hmm. But it is also transcendent, right? It is also the word of God. It's not just the word of Paul or the word of these disciples or the word of those prophets, right? It's the word of God. And so we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to guide that process. We trust in the, the reverence that was held by all of the believers who've come before us, who received that, who originally recorded that word, who received it in subsequent generations, who preserved it through all kinds of trials and handed it on to the next generation as a word of God not just the word of our community or the word of our ancestors or whatever, but this is the word of God. Um, and so sometimes I talk to students who have a really um, a really high theology and use those kinds of terms to say, okay, the Bible is certainly available to us right now, but it is also. And that, again, helps to find that balance of proper reverence and respect, but also this is still accessible to, and accessible to me. A way that we're actually – I'm teaching exegesis – this semester. And this last week, there was a set of readings that talked about some different principles for interpreting scripture. And one of the principles they called the, the Chalcedonian principle um, for the church history buffs, that's a reference <laughs> to the, the Council at Chalcedon, um, which affirmed that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And so, Similar to that eminent transcendent conversation, the way of thinking about scripture as fully human, written by human beings, written by fallen, fallible, flawed (laughs) human beings, and yet fully divine, inspired by God's spirit, transmitted by faithful people, preserved by that spirit of wisdom and discernment that God promises to give to the people who seek, the people who ask. Um, that you can have faith in the text just as you have faith in the person of Christ and that it can be both of those things at the same time.
0: Mm. I th- I find something very beautiful about that kind of trust in the process and the people, but also in God right. to kind of bring this about in a way that maybe is complicated and a little messy, but also trustworthy. And I, uh, real quick, I also want to uh, – when I when I was an undergrad, I had no idea what the word exegesis meant, and I was very embarrassed to ask because it sounded a lot like exit Jesus.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that's one of what one of my students <laughs> used to say. I'm writing an exit Jesus paper. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, would you go ahead and define sure. that a little bit yeah. for
1: us? Um, so yeah, fancy theological term for 200, Alex. Um, <laughs> exegesis is uh, it's it's actually a Greek term. Um, the The larger verb is exigeomai. And it, it literally means to lead out. Um, if you had a sheep who needed to come out of the pen so they could go into the fields and graze for the day, you exigeomied them. <laughs> um, you led them out. So, so that's kind of a literal leading out. But the term also can be used in more of a figurative sense in terms of providing guidance, um, providing explanation for something. Um, the term itself is only used in the Greek New Testament in John chapter 1. Um, where the text says, "No one has ever seen God, but God the only begotten, who has come from the Father, has exegeted Him to us." So the term the term falls in there has some English translations will say has explained Him. Some English translations will say has made Him known. Um, and so so there are different ways. Again, that translation involving interpretation thing, <laughs> there are different ways of, of translating that word into English today. But that's where we get the word. Jesus exegetes God to us. And so when we talk about exegesis, we're usually referring to the process of interpreting, understanding, applying the biblical text. Oh, man. Leading out the Bible.
0: That is That is so much cooler than what I had had in my head uh, before we were doing this interview. So, All right. <laughs> thank you for that. That You're welcome. was really cool. As we move forward, I am I'm very curious for those of us not as as sort of innately gifted in language. For the
1: non-language geeks.
0: Absolutely. But those of us who are called to ministry nonetheless, what are what are some things you'd recommend for for ministers to pick up or to research or to do in their everyday practice that might get them closer to Doing this a little better,
1: sure, yeah, um, well, exegesis is i mean it's a it's very approachable. Um, now, if you happen to have a little original language skill under your belt, good for you, include that in it. But there are a lot of really, really wonderful textbooks and and other books that um, that encourage people in kind of a step by step process of reading the text, walking through. Um, Varying understandings of okay, build you know, build a hypothesis. What do you think this text is about? What what do you see in the text? What jumps out to you? Maybe repeated words and phrases. Maybe opposites. Um, compare, contrast, kind of stuff. Maybe a, a reference to a cultural practice that you don't know anything about. Right, and so then you then you say okay. Where can I learn about some of those things? Where can I expand my understanding of that particular practice? I talk with students, too, in my exegesis class that so many people assume if I'm going to study this Bible passage, I have to immediately go find five scholarly commentaries (laughs) that will tell me what I should think about the text. That's not at all true. The Bible is infinitely translatable. It is supposed to be approachable to you in and of itself without an advanced degree, without a fancy commentary without knowing Greek and Hebrew inside out and backwards. Those are all great things. Mm. We we want people to have those things too. But you can totally read the Bible for yourself on your own and get a, a good understanding of what the text is saying from the brain that God put in your head, the spirit that's at work in your life, just as it was at work in the lives of the people who recorded the word in the first place. Um, and in the life of the community of believers that God has placed you in, right? So often we're these kind of lone ranger exegetes where you lock yourself in your office or you lock yourself in your study and you wrestle with the text to come up with this meaning that then you deliver from on high to <laughs> to the congregation. That's, you know, God put us in community for a reason. And so I think exegesis is done best when we talk together as a group about here are the things that I'm seeing in the text. These are the questions I have. Here are the ways that I'm trying to to pull things together. Um, here's how my understanding either fits with or maybe is at odds with the people who have interpreted the text before me.
0: Hmm. Well, and I'm also curious, as we sort of move to wrap up, I'm assuming that not all interpretation is created equal, right? <laughs> yeah. And as accessible as as Scripture can be, sure. there, there is a sort of push and pull and a balance there that Absolutely. we need to be mindful of. Yeah,
1: yeah. We, I mean, when we talk about interpretation, we talk about faithful interpretation. You can read the Bible and come up with all kinds of really interesting <laughs> ways of, <laughs> here's, here's what I think it means. Um, and all you have to do is a good web search to come up with several of those. Now, some of them are closer to the original intent of the text, to the teachings of the church that have been handed down through time than others. Um, And so when we talk about faithful exegesis, I I talk with my students about the two horizons of the text. First horizon has to do with how the text would have been received, how it would have been understood by the original audience. Um, As close as you can come to understanding how those people would, would be likely to have understood it. Now, we may not know that for sure till we get to heaven and ask them, <laughs> but you can learn as much as you can about, about that history, about that culture, about the challenges of that time so that when you are reading, you have a better idea of here's how they would likely have understood that. So then when you have that original horizon in mind, then as you're walking through that interpretation process, as you're doing your exegesis, and you're starting to think about how does this apply, how does this, how is this received in in my day, in my time, in with the people that God's calling me to serve, to work with. And the closer that your horizon follows the contours, I don't say match, right? We do not live in ancient Rome under Roman oppression during the time and per- time period and, and cultural concerns of that day. That's, that's not true. Um, so th- they shouldn't match exactly. That's not who we are. And yet, the closer that our contemporary application can come to following those contours, right, if this text was about persevering in times of trouble to its original audience, surely a faithful interpretation today is going to have something to say about persevering in times of trouble. Our perseverance might look a little different. Our times of trouble might be a little different. But the principles of perseverance, that's, that's, that's what I mean by faithful exegesis.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, Mindy, I wanted to thank you for being here. This was uh, a wonderful conversation. And then my final question for you is, do you think seminary is scary?
1: I've been thinking a lot about this because you, you said you were going to ask this. And I, I really think the answer is yes and no certainly the challenge of a master's level program to aim towards a future of serving the people of God for, for God's kingdom, for God's glory. That's a huge responsibility. And so maybe there should be a little rightful fear, right? Maybe a little reverence, a little a little trembling um, involved in that. that. That's not something to enter into lightly. And yet I think especially for some of the things we've been talking about, about how, you know, people are afraid to take Greek and Hebrew. People are, are fearful of really being able to work with the Word of God. That shouldn't be scary at all. That's, that's, that's not what it's intended to be. That That's a, that's a tool. That's an equipping. Um, now, if you're going to learn how to use XYZ piece of complicated equipment, um, I'm going to demonstrate my ignorance if i say any particular (laughs) piece of it you know if you're going to learn how to run the equipment you want to you want to be careful you want to do that well you want to not break it you want to you know be safe um those are all things to to be concerned about but at the same time when you learn to use that tool and you can use it well that's not scary at all
0: Hmm. i love that well thank you so much mindy for being here i enjoyed talking to you thanks When I was an undergrad, I definitely watched people drop the major at the prospect of learning Greek. And some of that kind of makes sense to me. Learning a language is hard and it can be really intimidating, especially when you're talking about the languages of scripture. But when you put in the work and you spend the time, you can start to see the text in a whole new light and feel more confident in reading it for yourself. The text starts to surprise you again and you start to feel closer to the writers of scripture and their context. But that's not even really what it's about. When we take heartfelt attempts at translation and interpretation of scripture, we end up doing what Jesus did. We end up participating in God's self-disclosure. And that's the Christian thing to do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KACU for providing the studio space and all of this wonderful equipment. I'm your host, Eric Massey. Until next time.